0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Michael was met with what can only be called extremely defensive behavior on the part of the military medical establishment. They said there is no medical evidence linking service in the Gulf to any illness.
1: Denise Donnelly, sister of Gulf War veteran Michael Donnelly, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Memorial Day is, of course, the day America honors the men and women who have sacrificed their lives in military service. But, of course, not all those lives were given on the battlefield. U.S. Air Force fighter pilot Michael Donnelly flew 44 combat missions during the first Persian Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, in the early 1990s. But by 1996, Michael Donnelly had been medically discharged after being diagnosed with ALS, sometimes known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And the fight he then engaged in with the United States government over his medical treatment proved to be the most challenging battle of his military career. In 1998, he and his sister Denise co-authored a book called Falcon's Cry, a Desert Storm Memoir. So here now, from 1998, Denise Donnelly.
0: My brother, Major Michael Donnelly, U.S. Air Force, retired, and I wrote this book together. Michael was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease about two and a half years ago. He's a former F-16 pilot who flew 44 combat missions during the Persian Gulf War and became ill a number of years subsequent to the war. And during the course of investigating Lou Gehrig's disease and also what came has come to be known as Gulf War illnesses, we um, concluded without a doubt that Michael's illness is directly linked to his service in the war. And in our frustration at the fact that this story really hasn't captured the public imagination, we decided that we had to do something to get the word out there. And we did what we could, which is to tell Michael's story.
2: Maybe it's because, maybe it hasn't captured the nation's attention in such a graphic way, because 110,000, that's just a number. But when you show us an individual, a a young man, a healthy young man, who has a brilliant future ahead of him, and all of a sudden, he's got a disease that, that is rare enough to begin with, but exceedingly rare in men of his age and That's his right. physical condition. But he's one of 18 who came back with it from the
0: Gulf. Actually, um, since the time that the book has was published, there's more. There's more. And we're only finding these numbers through our, our own research and through the network of Gulf War veterans that we have come into contact with. Um, the r- most recent number that we've heard is 35. Gulf War veterans with Lou Gehrig's disease.
2: Uh, even to have one yes. come back from the Gulf yes. with well, Lou Gehrig's disease would be considered something of a medical um, oddly, wouldn't it? I mean, know, given the numbers? One,
0: we we spoke with um, Dr. Robert Brown, who is a researcher at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Actually, he's internationally acclaimed ALS researcher. And his estimate when he was put the question what he would expect the incidence to be among this population of 694,000 mm-hmm. individuals who are pre-screened for mm-hmm. their health. So they're not the average population. Um, he said that he would expect one, maybe two at most from this population. So there's clearly an epidemic. And we believe that the number and the incidence will be higher than 35
2: Yeah, because many of these men and women have yet to come forward.
0: They have yet to come forward. They have yet to understand that their illness may be linked to service in the Gulf because the government isn't doing anything in a public health way to notify them and also to warn them. From our experience collecting anecdotal information, we have found that many of these individuals were sort of sick, um, never felt quite healthy when they came back, but it was only years later after a subsequent exposure to a pesticide that they really became ill and then declined into what has been diagnosed as Lou Gehrig's disease.
2: What was the reaction of the military when your brother first raised the possibility that maybe this was a result of his service in the Gulf?
0: Um, Michael was met with what can only be called extremely defensive behavior on the part of the medical military medical establishment. Um, he heard over and over what he came to call the line, and it was a line that doctors would proclaim as if they had were reading it from a script, and we really began to wonder if there weren't a script in which they said, there is no medical evidence linking service in the Gulf to any illness. Now, that's remarkable in many ways, because at the time that Michael was hearing it, there really weren't any studies to speak of. To um, for them to be able to make that assessment. But nobody ever offered to interview Michael or to do any kind of medical research involving Michael or these other veterans who are so sick with ALS or with the horrible cancers that we know many of them are suffering from.
2: What's the problem? What? Why can't the government just say, Yes, you're right. You, these young men and women were harmed by something. Now we're going to come to, the, to their aid. We're going to help them. It's our duty. They, right. they serve their country. Now it's our duty to them. What's the problem? Why can't the government do that?
0: I think there are a lot of things that work here, and I can only speculate as to why this is happening because I don't know what is motivating the Pentagon, um, to stonewall. But I can tell you that our impression is that, first of all, this was the perfect war. And if it's true that the war has not ended and the casualties continue to mount, then it wasn't the perfect war. And it's not the answer to warfare as we know it, that the United States cannot go in and make a surgical airstrike and expect to have no casualties. So first of all, the big public relations hoorah that greeted these um, veterans when they came home was actually not quite the whole truth. Secondly, I think that if the truth were to come out, it would become clear that young men and women who are thinking of entering the military might have risks to confront that they may not understand when they enlist. And those risks specifically would be the same risks that my brother and other vet- veterans encountered when they were in the Gulf. They were not adequately protected, and nothing has changed since the Gulf War and today. The equipment is still faulty. Um, the United States is not prepared to face this kind of threat. And I don't know if you've heard about the anthrax vaccines oh, yeah. that, um, that uh, excuse me, that enlisted people are being subjected to. Um, we find that laughable almost because by announcing to the world that we're inoculating our troops against anthrax, we're basically telling Saddam Hussein and other terrorists what to use. <laughs> um, I mean, here it is. Use anthrax. Anthrax can come in many different strains. And this particular vaccine is going, only going to protect them against one strain.
2: I, I had trouble imagining if 110,000 veterans of World War II, in which there were many, many times as many service people involved, if they had come back and said all of a sudden within the first five, six years after the war had come up with some symptoms, I can't imagine the Pentagon turning their back on them the way they've turned their back on these men and women.
0: Well, the sad thing, Bill, is that in a lot of ways this is Vietnam all over again. Uh, We promised that we would get it right this time, and we're getting it wrong again. This is the different war, same lies. This is what Vietnam veterans encountered when they returned from the war and spent 30 years trying to prove what eventually was acknowledged to be true about Agent Orange. Sadly, um, 100,000 veterans are suffering, but untold, numbers of their children and their spouses are suffering as well.
2: And the bills are piling up.
0: The bills are piling up. Many of them are not as lucky as Michael is to have a family that can afford to support him. He is receiving disability benefits and VA benefits, but primarily that's because he became ill while he was active duty and hired a lawyer to um, get the benefits that he earned. Many, many thousands of these veterans are destitute. They became ill after they were discharged because the Pentagon is claiming there's no connection to their service in the Gulf. They're receiving nothing.
1: After the short break, the real question, why the government won't help? 1998 interview with Denise Donnelly. But really, it,
2: it's not really... Dollars and cents, isn't it? The Pentagon—if they have five hundred dollars to spend on a toilet seat, they ought to be able they to
0: spend it, right? Yeah,
2: they—they they ought to be able to spend. So it's not really an economic issue as much as it is what you were saying a moment ago—the the public relations.
0: That—that's my impression. Um, I think that it also might be an economic issue because I think we're not finished seeing these individuals get sick. I think that in the end, the toll will be much, much higher than we can imagine right now. And
2: perhaps it's the precedent—if the war, of the future—if the war of the future right. is going to present this threat, who knows right. what kind of financial liability? the Pentagon could face. And if
0: it's all of the family members as well as the veterans themselves um, into who knows how many generations, you know, it could become a huge financial issue.
2: But then again, this is all kind of the, the political, the what-ifs, you know, we can right. we could argue this back and forth, right. but in the meantime, people need help.
0: Right. My brother's dying as our Thousands of other veterans and their family members, we need help now, and all they're asking for at this point is just give them the medical care and the benefits they deserve Michael has we on behalf of Michael have been begging. Secretary Cohen, as well as the Special Office on Gulf War Illnesses, Mr. Bernard Rotzker's office, to get Michael and the other veterans suffering from ALS access to experimental drugs, which are being used on human subjects right now. We have received no response, none. We've been begging since January, and they have been promising us that they're working on it, but we have received no response. And in the meantime, Michael is dying, as are thousands of other people. What we're asking is we're asking President Clinton, who is the commander-in-chief, at least at the moment, um, to declare a national emergency. He's able to declare a national emergency when there's a flood or a fire or in the event of war. He was able to get their butts over there when it was time for them to get there, and they went. Now it's another national emergency, and we need to get them help now while it will still make a difference.
2: You must feel... I don't I don't want to say powerless, but you must feel like you're up you're David against the Goliaths.
0: Absolutely. And it's a terribly frustrating feeling. And I think for my brother and the other veterans, it's tragic because these are people who are principled and idealistic and believe in what this country is supposed to stand for. And basically what they're being told is, We're done with you, we've used you, goodbye.
2: Why hasn't this whole experience made him more cynical then?
0: Um Michael is an amazing person, and through this illness, he's only become more of what he was. He believed in the people he was fighting with, the individuals. He believed in the the people in our town, the citizens of our hometown in South Windsor, Connecticut, who have come out to rally around him. He thinks that for the most part, most Americans are good people and believe in the principles of this country, and that really it's the individuals in the government who have to who have to hear the truth and come out with the truth and act.
2: It's so easy, though, for the government to say, you know, the government. That's right. There's no face to the, the government. Well,
0: actually, there are many faces.
2: But they, President
0: Clinton... But they
2: all pass the buck to one that's another. That's right,
0: they do. If you listen to uh, retired General Schwarzkopf, he says, I'm retired. The same with retired General Powell. I'm retired. It's not my responsibility anymore. These are people who could be taking a stand and really helping these veterans instead of abandoning them.
2: Has there been any indication, you suppose, that anybody at that high level was exposed? Because um, you could darn well bet if one of them came sure, down with ALS.
0: Sure, that something would happen. Something would happen. Interestingly, um, I do know that General Schwarzkopf spent much of the war in a bunker three stories underground and that one of the young men who was guarding the bunker above ground while the chemical weapons alarms were sounding is extremely ill right now. And he has tried, this is Kevin Wright of uh, Ohio, he's tried to reach General Schwarzkopf, and General Schwarzkopf is no longer responding to Kevin's calls for help. So this is a man who protected Schwarzkopf's life during the war and is now suffering from a degenerative neurological illness
2: what do you hear from other family members from other from other veterans
0: the stories that we hear would make your skin crawl um, we know of a family who a, a man who sent his gear back from the Gulf his wife stored it in the baby's room the baby within a week came down with gangrene and was hospitalized for weeks this was a three-month-old baby who is still suffering um, health problems that are a bizarre and mysterious etiology. nobody knows what happened also, within a week or two of that gear being stored in the house, the entire family came down with asthma so severe that they were all hospitalized. Today, um, his wife is st- suffering from connective tissue disease or lupus. They can't diagnose it. He, the veteran, and his twin children who were home when the gear was stored are all suffering from what's called pseudotumor cerebri. They're all going blind um he's unable to work he's completely disabled his wife is supporting the family but she's also extremely ill this is just one story of thousands and thousands and thousands i can tell you of people i met at a conference in washington dc who the stories would just break your heart and they're they're destitute
2: are you making any progress? is any do you see any light at the end of the I, tunnel?
0: I to tell you the truth, i I don't until this story captures the public imagination, and we're hoping that our book will help to to do that um, until there's a groundswell in the American people of saying this is outrageous, and it has to stop, and members of Congress understand that the American people are outraged and that they have to do something about this such as past legislation that's now before the House, I really don't see any hope. I see the Pentagon continuing to issue denials left and right.
2: Maybe you can get high school kids to wear the copper bracelets. That's right, or a yellow or ribbon. Wow, I mean, right. it, 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 it breaks my heart as a voter, as a citizen that's of this right. country, to think that we would have to jump up and down and wave balloons to get the attention of the people who should be helping well, them in the first place. they
0: have our attention. We have their attention. They're just not acting. They're studying and studying and spending millions of to study. dollars what, they on they researching. Study until those people are dead? Right, exactly. They're waiting for my brother to die. I'm convinced of it because when he's dead, the story isn't as compelling. He's not sitting there before you, a quadriplegic in a wheelchair who cannot speak and cannot eat. This man who was a six foot four, strapping, gorgeous, charming fighter pilot, patriot, um, Mr. Red Blooded All American Boy. When he's gone, it's a much less compelling story, a much less powerful story because he's not there as a picture to represent what's happening to these veterans.
2: How much time do they figure he has left?
0: We don't know. Um, it's a degenerative disease and he, has lost the ability to speak in the last few months. And eventually what happens with ALS is that the muscles around the lungs and heart collapse, and you're no longer able to breathe. So you die by asphyxiation.
1: Michael Donnelly died in 2005. He was 46, and a 2008 study by the University of Cincinnati confirmed 48 cases of ALS in Desert Storm veterans. And you can find easy Amazon links to Michael and Denise Donnelly's book at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with another young serviceman who returned from war only to find himself battling a deadly disease and the government. My 1987 interview with Elmo Zumwalt III, the young man whose father, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, ordered the spraying of Agent Orange in Vietnam, that led to Elmo Zumwalt III's cancer diagnosis. I was in rivers and canals that were so narrow that we couldn't turn a 55-foot boat around in them, and I was in some of those before defoliation and in it afterwards, and uh, the difference was remarkable. The, the difference of taking fire from a few feet away versus thousands of yards away uh, made a real difference in being able to handle the firefight. And be sure to listen to my 1994 interview with Vietnam-era battlefield nurse Winnie Smith.
0: 18, 20-year-old, you know, dying by himself 10,000 miles from home, and usually they were unconscious, but occasionally they would be awake, and they could grasp what was happening.
1: And of course, we post new episodes of Now I have Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as we start LGBTQ Pride Month, my 2000 interview with one of the leading literary figures in the gay rights movement of the late 20th century, author Armistead Maupin.
2: I've been more autobiographical in this novel than I've ever been before. What I've done is basically cast the people I love the most
1: in a psychological suspense story. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.